Welcome to The Institute, a podcast on the lives and work of fellows and friends of the Institute for the Arts and Humanities at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. I'm Sophia Ramos. In this episode, Philip Hollingsworth speaks with sociology professor and director of the Institute, Andy Perrin. In their conversation, Professor Perrin discusses his vision for the future of the IAH, as well as how his research in sociology will inform his approach to leading the Institute for the next five years. I interviewed you like two years I ago. I remember that last time I, I looked back at fellowship. it. Yeah. I looked back at it. I was like, oh, that was two years ago. And of course, I listened to some of it. And they were mowing the lawns, of course, during the thing, <laughs> which happens. Um, yeah. I just want to talk a little bit about getting started here and what um, you look forward to and things like that. Sure. About working at the Institute Absolutely. itself. I mean, you know, as I think you know really well, the Institute has played a huge role in my own career and my own intellectual development. So Mm -hmm. partly I'm just thrilled to be able to give back to some of that, you know, the value that it's given me over the years. And a lot of that really is about the, the interdisciplinary character of it, the kind of sophisticated, cutting-edge, critical nature of what goes on both in the faculty fellows program but also in the leadership programs. Um, And so, you know, all of that has been central to kind of my own development. Um, And so I'm just kind of excited to to give back to it. Um, In particular, uh, I think that there are two things that I'd like to focus on Thing one is to make the Institute an even better um, advocate for the value of the arts and humanities, in particular scholarship in mm-hmm. the arts and humanities, um, on campus, uh, in a state, and nationally. You know, How do you envision us doing that beyond what we already do? If sure. You, yeah. yeah. No, I mean, I think in part, you know, and, and I said this in, in some of my early interviews here and stuff, in part, it's about just being in the room where it happens, um, yeah. you know, to quote Hamilton. Uh, uh-huh. <laughs> you know, it's about making sure that when there's strategic planning going on at the university level, that IAH is well and seriously represented so that we can make the case for the independent value of the arts and humanities. And that's at the strategic planning at the, at the university level, at the college level. Also, when uh, the system, university system, is talking about priorities around the state, the value of the arts and the humanities in, uh, in the UNC system. And then the other area, I think, is in thinking about the places where this university has sort of outward-facing artistic enterprises, the um, yeah. Arts Everywhere, Cal- Carolina Performing Arts, the Ackland, Playmakers. You know, these are really successful things that I think deserve a greater connection with the faculty. Yeah. And our fellows um, are connected to all these yes, I places know. as well. Yeah. So. <laughs> um, so that's the that's the on-campus piece. Yeah. Going beyond that, talking to the legislature in the state, um, to policymakers in Washington about the value of um, the arts and humanities as, again, independent, important pieces of intellectual work. Mm-hmm. Um, I yeah. think is is super important, and um, you know, I just came earlier this week from a um, an event at the National uh, Endowment for the Arts. They were talking okay. about the research labs that yeah. the NEA runs, and there is great research showing the effects of the arts, uh, positive effects on health outcomes, on economic outcomes, on civic outcomes. Sometimes, that's all great, but I came away from that thinking, 
What's missing is a, a really strong engagement with the arts themselves mm-hmm. instead of yeah. just the arts yeah. to do something else. Right. Yeah, that's one thing I've found with some language that's come from not just the university but other places is it seems like the the uh, humanities and arts, when they do mention them in terms of strategic planning or curriculum, is like the support system to like the greater thing being like yeah. science or profession. Mm-hmm. So how that's one of the things I've thought a lot about is how do you shift that narrative and that no, we should it, it should be more of a side by side thing instead of you know it would be nice to have this to lift up our right. scientific endeavors or. right and i i actually think it has to be a little of each right yeah. so it, it is right. it is in fact true that better education better scholarship in the humanities and in the arts makes people better citizens it probably makes them more effective and and more efficient employees that's all great and there's no reason we shouldn't you know play that up right but that's not why we do this work mm-hmm. um, number 1 and number two, we need to understand it not just as a black box of, oh, yeah, the humanities over there and they help us with those things. But what's going on? What's, what are the intellectual processes that are going on in the arts and humanities that make those outcomes, you know, actually be, be the case? Okay. Right. So trying yeah. to really, you know, open that black box, understand what's going on inside it. I think mm-hmm. that's really crucial. Yeah. Now, uh, we talked about the first thing you said you wanted yeah. to kind of jump on right away. Uh, after kind of just maintaining what we we've done well, what was right. that? What was that second? Thing? The other thing to, is yeah. it's actually quite related. Okay, but uh, the other thing I really want to work on is what is the substantive contribution of um, the arts and humanities, arts and humanities scholarship in particular on uh, democracy, mm-hmm. good citizenship. You know, that's my own field, as you may remember. Right, that's yeah. what I was working on here last time I uh, had a faculty fellowship. Um, and you can check the archives for more information on that. There well, you go. Yeah. <laughs> but I, you know, I want to work on what we can do to explain and to sort of to, to use our expertise here at the Institute um, to foster better citizenship, better dialogue, better kinds of engagement with one another and engagement across difference, again, at lots of different levels here within yeah. campus as well as beyond. Yeah, that sounds great. I imagine that we could definitely be working with a lot of other organizations on campus. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I, you know, one of the things that's really awesome about this campus in general is mm-hmm. there's a lot of really productive, exciting centers where people do lots yeah, of different things. Yeah. And so anytime anything big happens, you know, it's actually a, a collaboration between lots of different centers and offices. So Yes, we'll we'll be working with the provost's office. We'll be working with, um, you know, the, the Odom Institute, political science, CFE, whoever wants mm-hmm. to work with us on those kinds of uh, those kinds of initiatives. In mentioning your work with um, democracy and engagement, democracy, and then enveloping that to the humanities, what mm-hmm. what inspires you, or originally inspired you to to follow that that path in terms of scholarship? Well, honestly, my my scholarship was first about democracy and citizenship, mm-hmm. and it was the humanities piece that came later. Okay. Um, you know, most of my career I've been interested in what are the things that we need people to be able to do and say and experience in order yeah. to be good citizens and to be, you know, faithful members of a democratic public. The humanities piece that that has come in later but I think is really crucial 
is that the, it's, it's in areas like the humanities and the artistic scholarship as well that people learn um, that one idea that we call multivocality, right? That mm-hmm. a given object can mean different things to different people in different kinds of contexts. Um, you know, that, that we um, actually want to privilege and pay attention to complexity, um, yeah. Right. If you think about the the kind of scientific approach to the world, it's it's more about reduction. What does this one variable do? Mm-hmm. The humanistic approach is about honoring and understanding complexity, um, and uh, democracy and citizenship is inherently about multivocality. It's inherently about complexity. It's about trying to develop um, conversations that really uh, transcend big difference between people. Yeah. So I think actually they're the same skills, the same kinds of things that we do in the humanities. One thing I've remembered from, I believe it was your public talk and some comments you gave during our board yeah. meeting was uh, the term uh, moral courage. Yeah. How do you see that, not just the term, but the practice of that playing out and how you'll lead this institute and how that works in terms of your vision for what this place does for the university and outside of that? Oh, that's a really interesting question. You know, um, I would say that my leadership style um, tends to privilege moral courage, which is mm-hmm. to say I really value both in myself and in others um, speaking up for what you think is really right, even if um, that causes political problems or disagreements with people you usually agree with, those mm-hmm. sorts of things. Right. And I think, um, I think moral courage is something that can be taught and can be encouraged. And so, and I think it's something that is particularly valuable in academic leadership. And so in the, in the side of the institute that works uh, on leadership in the chair's leadership program, the academic leadership program, you know, I would like to find ways to, to talk specifically about the value in the practice of moral courage. I think, again, it comes down to a set of values that, again, come out of the humanities Mm-hmm. which is to say a f- sort of faithfulness to the text, but also a kind of interpretive um, complexity, an interpretive sophistication that uh, refuses to be kind of flattened or refuses mm-hmm. to be um, sim- oversimplified. And so I think there's a relationship between those two kinds of, of intellectual practices. Yeah, so it it seems like it's hard at times for folks to make that leap because it's easier to avoid conflict or yes. to to um, not speak up when it's time to. What what advice would you give as maybe like a primer to to beginning to not shy away from conflict based mm-hmm. on a moral conviction? Look, I, I think the main thing. I guess there's there's two pieces. Does, I guess does that makes sense. Um, yeah, no, I think it does make sense. Okay. Uh, <laughs> um, I guess I would say two pieces of it. One is simply don't, in fact, be afraid of it, that mm-hmm. the values and the style of the leadership of the university are all about the participation of the faculty in particular in running the university. Mm-hmm. That doesn't mean that you're always going to get listened to or honored or paid attention to, but it does mean that the forum is there to express and, and make that set of claims. Mm-hmm. The other side of that that I think is really important, I, I wouldn't want to make this claim completely across the board, but most people who are anywhere in a university from the, you know, the, the lowest level staff up to the chancellor, right, they're there because they're there for the sort of sense of um, purpose or sense of mission of the university. They believe in some piece of it. They 
you know, with almost no exceptions, they are taking a pay cut to to work at a place like this. Right. And so I think a, an assumption or expectation that even your opponents um, come at this for principled reasons and are trying to, um, you know, to achieve a good outcome, I think that's really important. So moral courage doesn't mean, you know, kind of running roughshod over your opponents. Yeah. You know, it means effectively expressing a position, but also listening really well to, to the opinions of others. Mm-hmm. So it means being quiet for a time and also doing your homework, right? Yes, it absolutely <laughs> does. Right. That's great. This is a question we ask sometimes, and we have it in a while, but what does rest look like for you? <laughs> Outside uh, of all your many activities, yeah. serving the university, teaching, and all your obligations in the sociology department. Right. I mean, in truth... Uh, I like to tell my graduate students sometimes that before I went to graduate school, I worked in Rochester, New York for a computer repair company. I was doing hardware repair for three big General Motors factories that were in Rochester. Okay. And um, this was before there were cell phones. And so when a, a part would come in that, you know, one of us needed, they would send out a page to all the technicians' pagers. And... Um, we each had a set of initials to, to identify when the page was for us versus someone else. So my initials were BW for bookworm. Okay. Um, and the, the reason for that is, you know, all my colleagues knew that what I liked to do when I wasn't, you know, working <laughs> was sit down and read a book. Right. So, you know, fast forward now I'm in a, you know, hugely fortunate to be in a profession where basically my job is to read and write books. Yeah. Uh, that's pretty incredible. Yeah. That said, it's assumed that I'm going to do it all the time. You know, mm-hmm. I'm about three years behind reading my journals. I've got <laughs> 75 books on a stack to read yeah, in my yeah, office, yeah. Um, and it and it takes up all the time. So on the one hand, I'm super fortunate that I actually I love every piece of the job of professor. I love teaching. I love supervising graduate students. I love research. I love service, um, and so uh, that's that's great. On the other hand, most of my time is spent doing one of those things. Right. Um, yeah. That's just. It's just how it is. Mm-hmm. When I do have um, relaxation time, I love to cook and to eat. I love to spend time with you know my family, just kind of hanging out, um, walking the neighborhood, maybe going for a bike ride. Um, I love to travel when I can. Yeah, um, yeah, that's great. Uh, related to your passion for books, yeah. we always ask this: What's a book that changed your life? Wow, there's a. I mean, there's certainly several. Candidates. I think the book I might I might identify the most, the one that sort of has at least most recently changed uh, sort of the way I look at things is Danielle Allen's book called Talking to Strangers, okay. uh, which uses the experience of the United States Civil Rights Movement as the uh, the core um, material to build uh, political theory about talking across difference, mm. um, and it really um, it really sort of sparked a whole new way of thinking about my area, my subject area. So does that take that civil rights movement and apply it to a more contemporary context? Or when was that written? I was just... It was written, I want to say, early 2000s okay. sometime. Right. Yeah. You know, but the, the ingenious thing it does is it takes the actual historical experience of the civil rights movement mm-hmm. and, and says, what can we develop out of it as a question of, of normative political theory. Oh, okay. And so the title of it is Talking to Strangers. Yes. Right? And so there's this yeah. whole claim about, you know, no, don't talk to strangers. Well, don't talk to strangers contains a whole political sense to it. Oh, okay. Right? Yeah, yeah. Um, and so 
uh, and she does a wonderful piece uh, within the book on on the symbolic nature of voting and the practice of voting and how that um, uh, teaches people what it means to be part of a polity. It seems applicable Keep now back to it. in terms of people getting, even online, despite the fact that we Absolutely. seem more connected, we're in these echo chambers. Absolutely, yep. Issues of confirmation bias and things like that, but yeah. that's great. Well, thank you very much. Thank you for your time. Oh, my that's pleasure. Great. Yeah. No worries. Great. That's it. Check back at iah.unc.edu for the latest news on our fellows and upcoming events at Hyde Hall. You can find all our episodes of the podcast on our website, as well as iTunes, SoundCloud, and Spotify. Please like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at IAH underscore UNC.